I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4, fourth chapter of Daniel. We departed for a week. I told you last week that my intention was to preach a 20-minute sermon. I did not succeed. I was told afterwards that uh, I think the time was 29.57, so someone was really on the ball with that uh, stopwatch there. Uh, this is not going to be a 20-minute sermon, but I don't think it will, go, it will be a, a lengthy one either. Now, what we're going to do, I'm telling you this up front, we're going to read the entire chapter because it's a story. It's a story. And then I am not going to spend the remainder of my time replaying every detail of the story that we've just read. So I am depending upon you at this point that in one reading of the story, you will have discipline and a little focus to stick with me because the story is not hard to understand. I don't think that we need to spend another 20 minutes after the story explaining the story. The story's not that tough. Okay, so Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to read the entire thing. Listen. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all of the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. In it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast 
and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever, to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you, Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you. Till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. 
His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Now, uh, I think I would be remiss this morning. I think it would be missing the mark if I took this text and offered to you some deeper interpretation other than the meaning that is plainly stated in the text no less than three times. What is the point of this chapter? This is God's Word. We're gathered here together as God's people, if you are a believer. What does He want us to learn this morning from His Word? Verse 17. That the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will. Verse 25. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And verse 32. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. I could make a lot of other observations from this text this morning. We could observe Daniel's uh, friendship with King Nebuchadnezzar, which is clearly blossomed. Nebuchadnezzar here shows concern for Daniel. Daniel shows concern for Nebuchadnezzar. We've come a long way from chapters 1 and 2 in the text. Um, That would be an interesting talk. We could talk about zoanthropy or boanthropy, which are the names of the medical conditions that we observe even in modern day cases where someone comes under the delusion that they are in fact an animal. We could talk about that. That would be interesting. You can read about that on your own. We could delve into Daniel's good counsel to the king, that he stop his sitting and that he take care for the concern of the poor Because after all, he's the king, and no matter how great he thinks his kingdom is, if he is neglecting the poor, he is neglecting the fact that these are his responsibility as the king, so we could really dive deep into Daniel's counsel to Nebuchadnezzar here. And all of those are worthy of time and attention and thought, but they are not the point of this text. The point of the text is clear and obvious in black and white on the pages no less than three times. God wants us to know that He rules the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomever 
he chooses. This is not the only time in the Bible that God makes this point. Certainly not. In fact, one could walk through the pages of Scripture and see this same point made over and over and over again. We could see it with Adam. We could see it with Nimrod. We could see it with Pharaoh. We could see it with the destruction of the Canaanites. We could see it with the destruction of the Israelites. We could see this over and over and over again. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomever he chooses. This morning I would call your attention to a guy we don't talk about a whole lot, the prophet Habakkuk. We don't know much about Habakkuk. We don't even know apparently how to pronounce his name. Those of you who are laughing understand what I'm talking about because I have heard Habakkuk pronounced at least two ways and from time to time I think I hear a third or a fourth way creep in there when someone says his name. For my purposes this morning, it will be Habakkuk. Although when I was a little kid and I learned the song to memorize all the books of the Bible, it was uh, Habakkuk was how I was supposed to say it. But nevertheless, Habakkuk was a prophet living in the land of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered it, before the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, before Daniel was taken captive, before anything that we're reading about in the book of Daniel, Habakkuk was a prophet in the land of Judah. And Habakkuk was a very troubled man. He begins his, his book in the Old Testament. It's a short book. But in chapter 1, he begins by asking God, How long, O Lord, will I cry out to you and you not hear me? That is the voice of a troubled man. Have you ever felt that way before? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you don't cry out to God. I don't know. But that is the voice of a troubled man. Then he says this, I cry out to you about the violence that I see in Jerusalem. This was God's people and God's city. And here's God's prophet, God's man, and he sees violence. And he says, I cry out to you about the violence I see in Jerusalem, and you will not save. And he asks God, this is all chapter 1, why do you so, show me so much trouble? Why do I see all of this violence? He even says, why do I see all of this injustice? The law is subverted. The leaders in Jerusalem, who are supposed to be leading your people according to your law, they give perverted judgments. They bend the law for their own gain. Sound, sound familiar? I mean, we're not unfamiliar with injustice. This is a troubled man who lived among the Israelites in an ungodly time. There were no godly leaders. No one was doing the right thing. And he is spending his life. We can look back on this guy and say, oh, well, it's too bad that he didn't get to see good things in his lifetime. But this is a man's life. It would be no different than if you gave your life to try to see a people group come to know and serve the Lord. And you spent your life praying for this and laboring for this and working for this. And there was never a response. Year after year, decade after decade, nothing. And, and so that's why he's crying out to God. I, I, I cry out to you and you don't answer. You don't save. And then, and then God speaks to Habakkuk in chapter 1. And he says... Habakkuk, I am going to do something that you will not believe. Okay, I like the way 
this is sounding. It's about time. You know, that's, that'd be my reaction to that. Okay, keep going. I am raising up the Babylonians. He calls them the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians. And they are going to bring judgment on Israel for all of the evil that you're crying out to me about. And you know what Habakkuk says? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Hold on. Don't do that. And he's a guy who's been crying out to the Lord to take action for presumably years. Don't do that. Things may be really bad in Israel, but, and he says this in chapter 1, we're way more righteous than the Babylonians. Don't bring them in here. You can't do that, God. I mean, he is appalled that God would bring in the pagan Babylonians against Israel, against God's chosen people, Israel. And then chapter 2 begins, and Habakkuk says, all right, I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to see what God answers. God has, you know, spoken. Um, I've given him my opinion on the matter. I'm going to stand here and see what God says. And God answers Habakkuk in chapter 2. He says, this is verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. And here's how I interpret that. You don't like what I'm about to do, Habakkuk? Maybe you know better than me what should happen here. That's your pride talking. Are you a just man, Habakkuk? Would you be a righteous man before me, Habakkuk? This is chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous person lives by faith. Nebuchadnezzar, for his part, is remembered as a tyrant of a king. Um, merciless, a king who is cruel, a king who is brutal, a king who has no qualms about slaughtering people. I mean, we saw that in chapter 2, right? I mean, it's a very short fuse before he's ordering the destruction of all these people. You may hear the message from Daniel 4 that God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And you may say, but why, God? How could you, God? And some would say, how dare you, God? Why Stalin? Why Hitler? Why Pol Pot? Why Mao? Why Trump? Why Biden? Why Putin? Why Bush? Why Clinton? Why Reagan? Go down the list as far as you'd like in either direction. That's what Habakkuk is asking. Why the Babylonians, God? Surely you can't do this. They are not good people. They will do, they are doing evil things. And God answers, Habakkuk, the righteous person trusts me. The just shall live by faith. Now, I've, I've heard people say that the Bible doesn't say anything consistent about human suffering. That the Bible doesn't have an answer for human suffering. It does. It has a remarkably consistent answer. Here it is. 
God is in control and the just shall live by faith. Do you trust God with Joe Biden as your president? Do you trust God with Donald Trump as your president? Do you trust God with Clinton, Bush, or someone else as your president? Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation, not any king or queen. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And then poses this question. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Sat with a man in a coffee shop two weeks ago, a person who I care about very deeply, a person who has wandered so far away from God that they can't see their way back for anything, a person who is atheistic and agnostic at this point, and I watched this man wrestle with suffering. And then he told me that I should be careful because pretty soon, this is his opinion, this guy's an atheist, this guy's an agnostic, pretty soon the world is going to be a very unfriendly place to me that he could see the writing on the wall and that Christians were about to face intense persecution. I wasn't saying this. He was telling me this. And I said, I'm not worried about that. He said, you should be. I said, I'm not. Why? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Who am I supposed to be afraid of? I don't have to be afraid of these guys. I don't have to be afraid of what they'll do. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomever they chooses and the just shall live by fear? No. By faith. That's just human government though, right? I mean, how about this? Do you trust God with sores all over your body? Do you trust God with failing organs and collapsing lungs and limbs that don't work anymore and minds that are headed towards dementia and a hand that you can't hold still and a body that you can't control? Do you trust God facing death as Job did? Or are you afraid? Here's Job in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Now, did you hear that? Who's doing the slaying in Job 13? This is Job talking. Though he, God, slay me, kill me, yet I will trust him. Why? That's a fair question. Why, Job? Why would you trust a God after losing so much and facing death. Why? He does not seem trustworthy at this point. I think many people in the world would raise their hand. That is a, that's valid. Here's a guy who's lost his children, his possessions, and now his health, and he is going to die. Chapter 13, chapter 19 of Job, it looks for all the world as if death is next. It's not in vain that his own wife is counseling him, just curse God and die. Women, I know you would do better than that. Job's wife has seen enough. He is sick and he's not getting any better. They don't have anything left. Why would Job 
trust God at this point. It's one thing to trust God when things seem to be going well. Why would he trust God here? He tells us. This is Job 19.25. Now, you can turn there and listen to what he says, but he tells us. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, that's very trite. Until you think that he says that while sitting in his underwear beneath a tree, scratching the infection off of his arms and legs and body with a broken piece of clay waiting for God to kill him. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And then listen to what he says. And he shall stand on the last day after my skin is destroyed. This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes will behold him and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job actually had an affection for God. And he says, even in the midst of suffering and pain, that his heart yearned within him to finally be with his God. Job believed in a bodily resurrection. And Job loved God. You say, that doesn't make any sense. God had taken everything away from Job. He had lost his children, which is where most of us draw the line. Do whatever you want to me. Just don't hurt my children. Job's kids were dead. So this doesn't make any sense. Why does he still love this God? And if you ask that question, you, my friend, begin to understand the frustration of Satan in this book. Because Satan was sure that if God allowed Job to suffer like this, Job would demonstrate that he didn't really love God at all. Instead, he was only performing a kind of outward love for God because he was afraid of what would happen to him if God didn't protect him. Satan says, Job serves you out of fear. He doesn't want things to go wrong and you've protected him from all this so he serves you out of fear. God says, Job serves me out of love. I know him, and he knows me. I have revealed myself to him. We have fellowship together, and he will not reject me. Even if you do whatever you will to him, he will not turn his back on me because he loves me, and I love him. So now God has not protected him, and he is suffering, and he has suffered greatly. Fear is no longer a motivator. There is nothing left for Job to lose. If Job is faithful to God at this point, it's not because he's afraid of something bad happening. The bad stuff has already happened. 
And to the amazement of a rebelling angel, Job still loves God. And he still trusts God. And when he dies, he knows that he will see God and not another, not anyone else, and his body will be redeemed and he will be with his God who loves him and whom he loves. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at the last on the earth after my skin is destroyed when I am dead from all of this. I know that in my flesh I shall see God and I will see him for myself and my eyes will behold him and not another. There's no other God I'm going to see. It's not some different God. I know whom I have believed in. How my heart yearns within me to see my God who has walked with me through this life I'm ad-libbing now. I'm interjecting myself into these feelings. Who has walked with me through this life for these many years and who has been faithful to me for these many years, who has been a friend to me, who has loved me, who has given me everything that I have ever known or enjoyed. He is my friend whom I love and my heart yearns within me to know him and to see him and to be with him. That is a man scraping his sores in his nakedness preparing to die. And there is more power in that than anything else you could possibly put your faith in. Because if God can sustain a man in that, there is nothing that this world can control him with. There is no fear that can grip him. That is real power. Job was a righteous man, and he lived by faith in his God because he loved him. Now, I believe that God loves me and has demonstrated that in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the relationship that I have with God, and I trust him. I believe in my life, that God is literally with me. I don't believe that I am living my life on my own in isolation with hopeful thoughts towards heaven. I don't believe that I am simply murmuring hopeful words in prayer to a God who's not truly there. I believe God is with me and I believe I know his presence and I see his handiwork in my life and I love him. He is the most high God who rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And here's where I'll land on this. He may give it to Nebuchadnezzar for a while for his own purpose and he doesn't have to explain it to me. Doesn't mean I have to like Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't mean I have to like what he does. Doesn't mean I have to give some moral approval to him. And then God can give it to someone else for a while. And then someone else. But this book that we're reading, and this is why this chapter is in here, this book that we're reading tells us who will ultimately inherit the earth. This book tells us that. And his name is Jesus. 
You've got to remember the statue of Daniel 2 in light of everything that's to come in this book, Daniel, that we work through chapter by chapter in the weeks ahead. You've got to remember that. This is in context. Well, there are different kingdoms that come and go. But at the end of all those kingdoms, here's what's going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar. God's kingdom is going to fill the entire earth and Jesus will be king. That's what the prophecy of Daniel is about. At the end of all this, God's kingdom will fill the earth and Jesus will be king. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation. He is lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Nebuchadnezzar is concerned with his own majesty. Jesus came eating with the lowly, living with the lowly, concerned for the lowly. He is king of kings, he is lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the Bible tells us that the meek will inherit the earth with him. That is Old Testament and new. Psalm 37, 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Matthew 5, 5, from the mouth of Christ, For blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. A dying Paul writes to his friend Timothy in prison. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying. If we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. And if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Reign with him. God gives the kingdom to whomever he chooses and he has chosen Christ and Christ has chosen me. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says to his disciples, don't be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he has the power and the right to do so. Because as we see and as we read in Daniel 4, the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomever He chooses. And He chooses Christ ultimately and forever and Christ chooses us to inherit the kingdom with Him. That ought to be a joyful thing to a Christian. That ought to be power enough to sit under a tree while you die. And if you hear that this morning and you are holding on to some piece of this world hoping to preserve your 401k or your constitutional rights or your good health or whatever else, I'm not telling you any of those things are bad. I'm not, there are things worth living for. There are things worth dying for. I'm not saying it, that's stupid or it's unimportant. That's not what I'm trying to say. But the Christian's peace and security, the Christian's hope and joy must be in Christ. It must be in the kingdom that we will inherit. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I won't build my li- a frame. That's a building term. 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Is your life built on the rock of Jesus Christ? I know that I'm saying some of these things this morning and that there are people here who don't know what it's like to have fellowship with God at all. You might even be confused what I could possibly mean by that. And your problem is not an intellectual belief about the Bible or what it might say. You just have never experienced knowing God. As I read to start the service this morning, there is only one way to know God. It's in looking to Jesus because in Jesus we have the demonstration of God's love toward us. So that when we look at Jesus, we see something worthy of our affection, worthy of our devotion, worthy of admiration. And that this sinless man who did not deserve death became death on the cross for us so that us who do not deserve heaven can know the righteousness and peace with God. There's a substitution that takes place on the cross. That's the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is a grand substitution. You don't deserve heaven because you are not righteous. Yet Christ did not deserve death because he is no sinner. But he steps into the sinner's place, experiencing what we deserve, so that we can experience what he earns. Eternal life with God. It's a grand substitution. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, what we mean by that is, you don't trust the work that Jesus has done for you at the cross. That's what placing faith in Jesus is. You look at the cross and you don't see love worthy of admiration. You don't see love worthy of devotion. You see, at best, something confusing or perhaps ideal, but not powerful, not transformational. But when I look at the cross, I see something worth giving my life for because I see a man who gave his life for me. I see the sacrifice that I'm called to in living for the Lord Jesus as something small to pay in light of what I will inherit and the joy that I get to live now. And that is transformational. So don't be confused about this. This all comes down to what you see at the cross. You cannot serve God out of fear and fire insurance and just get me out of hell. If your service to God is based on fear and not faith, you cannot know the joy of fellowship with Him. It will at best seem like a monotonous obligation, joyless and unsatisfactory. And I'm afraid that's where some of us live. It shouldn't be. But if in Christ you see a friend who has loved you and who has given his life for you, there is joy in knowing that friend. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, protect us from obligatory religion. Help us to hear the admonition of your son Jesus to the church in Ephesus that they have lost their first love. Work in our hearts to convince us of sin. To show us once again, even those of us who have been saved for many years, 
of the need of a Savior and the joyful meeting of that need in Christ. Help us to see the Christian life not as slavery to a master that we must oblige in order not to be destroyed, but as the joyful service of a child to a father who knows that his or her father is good and will be with them and will bless them and will keep them. Father, there is a time and a place for the metaphor of all of us as slaves or as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, keep us from associating that metaphor with joyless, obligatory, monotonous living. For that is not the testimony of your word. Help us to see in you what we promised, what we were promised in Christ, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, not merely a taskmaster with a chain around our necks. Free us from the boring, unfulfilling, unsatisfying, evil, a fearful, obligatory religious deeds. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.